There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Chapter again today. I'm not going to read through it, but I do ask that you uh, pray with me. Well, we do. First of all, we do pray for for Doug and Shelley. Know what a terrible time that is for them, and I pray you just be especially near to them and their family during this time. You would bless uh, the concert that Roy and them are going to do. You draw people to it and. Give the people a, a willing heart to give, to, to support them. Father, we pray for your word this morning that uh, you would take it, Lord, and use it. For it, it, it is what we need in a, in a world that's so crazy. Uh, we need guidance. And uh, that only comes from you by your word through the Holy Spirit. So open our eyes today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What if you knew the exact day you were going to die? Well, thanks to the Internet, now you can. All you have to do is go to the website, deathclock.com. From there, you enter things like your birth date, your height, and your weight, and it will tell you the day of your demise. I did it, and I was informed I will slip the surly bonds of this earth on Monday, August the 23rd, 2038. When I first saw the date, my first thought was, like Mondays aren't already hard enough. <laughs> now I have to work dying into the day somehow. Well, today we're going to see that King Saul actually did know the exact day he was going to die. And it's a terribly sad account. Look at verse 1 with me. Now, it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, You surely know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. And David said to Achish, Surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. I've been watching you, David, Achish said. You've been fighting your own people, so I trust you now. Now, we're going to go to war against the Israelites, and I want you and your men to join up with us. Well, it seems like David may have overplayed his hand here. He has been so successful in deceiving Achish that the Philistine king now wants his support for coming to war against David's own people, the Israelites. Uh-oh. Were you counting on this, David, when you backslid? Did you consider this when you cut yourself off from your people and you went into the Philistine country? Sure, the pressure was off of you when you ran away, but now there's a bigger problem. Now you're going to have to come against the very people of God. There's a price to pay for your 16-month vacation. 
And be sure of this one thing concerning sin. There's always a price to pay. Every temptation the devil sends our way is gift-wrapped as a present. Yes, David was given Ziklag. But 16 months later, the bill comes due. Achis even says, David, I have such trust in you, I'm even going to make you one of my bodyguards. Now, there is a shocking unconscious irony to Achish's words that is lost in the English translation. In the original, the expression for my bodyguard is literally the guard of my head. Now, if I were a Philistine, I'm not sure David is the one I would choose to guard my head. Just ask Goliath how well that went. Now, the narrator chooses to leave us in suspense on that question while he takes us forward in time to the eve of the battle with the Philistines. He does not reveal what happened to David. But in the meantime, it will only be in chapter 29 that we will be taken to learn the outcome of David's difficulties. Look at verse 3. Now, Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. Look back to verse 3. To me, it's very interesting that this verse says, Saul has put all the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Now, this verse might seem to be stuck in this passage for no apparent reason. There is a purpose for this statement, though. And that purpose is to contrast Saul's commandment to abolish fortune-telling with his later consultation of other sources of revelation besides God, which we will get into. Saul was falling into the same sin that he has abolished. Now, that the war between the Philistines and Saul were to take place in the northern city of Galboa, what that meant was the Philistines have penetrated deeply into Israel and that Saul was now boxed in. No wonder his heart greatly trembled. But how did this happen? How did Saul lose control over Israel? There's a simple reason. He was spending all of his time fighting the wrong enemy. He was chasing David. So now when there's a genuine war to fight, he is completely and totally unprepared. The same thing can happen to us. How often does the church get up and fighting about the correct Bible version or how to water baptize? Now, on the baptism part, I can tell you the pastor isn't supposed to fall into the water. And I understand that happens sometimes. But listen, if we get all tangled up in the little problems that arise among us as Christians, when it comes to do battle against our true enemy, we're going to be powerless. Now, in verse 6, Saul prays, but the Lord refuses to answer him. Now, why is that? Well, Saul's barrier was unconfessed sin. 
His sin has blocked God's ability to communicate with him. Isaiah 59.1 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins has hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Some people wonder why God is silent to their prayers. One reason could be found in Psalm 66:18. It warns us this way. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But that just makes sense, doesn't it? If we're not going to do what God has already said to do, or if we're going to keep doing what God said we shouldn't do, why should the Lord say anything else to us? If God says, do this, and we say no, or don't do that, to which we reply just one more time, and then we pray, oh, Lord, I really want to hear from you, God could say, really? The last time you heard from me, you disobeyed. I think we have to understand the Lord will not speak to us until we go back and obey the things he said that we have to do, or repent and turn away from the things he said that we shouldn't do. Now, Saul's uneasiness here progresses from fear to terror to sheer panic. Saul feels he has no other option except to try some unconventional ways to get God's wisdom. Verse 7, Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, In fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went, and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Please conduct a seance for me, and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Then the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the lands. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul, Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Now, this scene is as eerie and as dark as any ghost story you have ever heard. Saul creeps out at night to this haunted house and asks for this medium to call up the spirit of a dead person. One commentator said, Saul's decision to seek help from a medium is a measure of his moral exhaustion, his despairing faith, and his failed life. In desperation, he sought to know God's will any which way. Get it? Any which way? She's a witch. See, that's a play on words. Saul says, find me a woman who's a medium. And he's not talking about a dress size here. A medium is what the word suggests. Now, we think of a medium between large and small. A spiritual medium is one who goes between the natural and the supernatural. I'm glad we live in an age where such things don't exist. I say with tongue firmly planted in cheek. Millions of Americans won't even start their day unless they read their horoscope. And over the years, the media has worked hard to make witchcraft a normal part of life as the witch is today in the indoor story. Consider the shows, Bewitched, Sabrina, and Charmed. 
Do you remember the name of Sabrina's grandmother? It was Endora. Interesting. Now remember, in verse 3, Saul has outlawed all witches. The very commandment of God that Saul had once so diligently enforced in his kingdom, he now intends to break. Years later, the prophet Isaiah would say to his contemporaries, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? That's Isaiah 8.19. Matthew Henry says, Since Saul can discern no comfort either from heaven or earth, he resolves to knock at the gates of hell and to see if any there will befriend him and give him advice. Saul then disguises himself in verse 8. Maybe he puts on a wig, glasses, and a big red nose. We don't know. The text doesn't say. But listen, as a child of God, any time you have to disguise yourself to go someplace, red flashing lights and warning bells should be going off in your head. We should never have to hide our identity. The Bible says if we walk in the light as He is in the light, We have fellowship with one another. So if we have to wait until it's dark and go somewhere with a long raincoat and a hat pulled down over our eyes, we have no business being in that place. Well, the woman says, look, Saul, he says he will kill people like me. Well, she obviously thinks this is some kind of trap. She doesn't realize she is talking to Saul, which brings up an interesting point. If this woman can't even see through Saul's disguise, why would Saul think she has the ability to help him? But such is the desperate state of Saul's life. He is open to trying anything at this point. So Saul swears to her that nothing will happen to her. Now the incongruity of swearing an oath by the Lord about this deep act of rebellion and disobedience to the Lord seems to have escaped Saul. This is insane. Saul is making a vow in the name of the Lord. Literally, he is saying, I swear to God that even though God clearly forbids this in his word and it's absolutely prohibited in the law of Moses under the sentence of death, I swear you will not be punished for this wickedness. That is crazy. It makes absolutely no sense. That's like an animal rights activist beating a baby still to death with a kitten. You guys are a little slow this morning. I made that up. I'm sorry about that. Uh, Sadly, this is the last time we will ever hear the word Lord come out of Saul's mouth. Verse 11. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground, and bow down. What happens next has been the subject of speculation and debate among scholars for many generations. 
there are two views here. Some scholars say it's Samuel. Some say it's not. There's not a third view, by the way. But what happened here? Did this woman really call up Samuel's ghost, or was it a demon? Well, once again, scholars disagree. Some say this ghost was not really Samuel, but a demon disguised as Samuel. Others say that God allowed the spirit of Samuel to reappear and communicate with Saul, which is what I believe because the text says Samuel four different times. You don't have to agree with me on that. Everyone has the right to be wrong. I'm just kidding. Don't text me. Verse 15. Now Samuel said to Saul, Why do you disturb me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me. And God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you do not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem concerning this very event, which I'll read to you. The road to Endor is easy to tread for mother or yearning wife. There it is sure we shall meet our dead as they were even in life. Earth has not dreamed of the blessing in store for desolate hearts on the road to Endor. Whispers shall comfort us out of the dark, hands, ah God, that we knew. Visions and voices, look and hark, shall prove that the tale is true. And that those who have passed to the further shore may be held at a price on the road to Endor. Oh, the road to Endor is the oldest road and the craziest road of all. Straight it runs to the witch's abode as it did in the days of Saul. And nothing has changed of the sorrow in store for such as go down to the road in Endor. In verse 15 we read, Now Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? So we see that Samuel is none too pleased being called back up. He reminds me of the late Chuck Smith who used to tell people that if he ever died and someone raised him from the dead, he was punching the first person he saw right in the face. Now, I can understand that. Who would want to come back to this sin-addled and pain-filled planet? But anyway, Samuel has nothing but bad news for Saul. And he ends by telling him that tomorrow Saul and his sons will be joining him in death. But can't you at least a little bit sympathize with Saul here? Sure, you know what's right and wrong. But if you're honest, you have to admit sometimes you seem to have no choice, like Saul, but to make a wrong turn. You want to tell the truth, but if you do, it's going to cause trouble. You want to be honest, but cheating would be a lot easier and a lot less hassle. 
your anger gets away with you and you say some harsh and loving things. But what else could you have done? Something, maybe your past choices, maybe your pride, maybe the devil himself tells you that your options are limited. You have no choice but to make a wrong turn. What else could you do? You can do what's right. No matter how hot the pressure gets or how big the problem becomes, you always have at least one other choice than making a wrong turn, and it's doing the right thing. Obeying God, denying ourselves, and taking up our cross and following Christ is always an option that is available to every one of us. Verse 20, please. Then immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now therefore, please, heed also the voice of your maidservant, and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. So the servants together with the woman urged him, and he heeded their voice. Then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Forty years earlier, Saul was a promising young ruler and a marvelous physical specimen who stood head and shoulders above his fellow Israelites. He started his military career liberating the people of Jabesh-Gilead by decisively defeating their enemies, the Ammonites. How did things go so wrong for Saul? So he ends up a trembling mass on the floor of a forbidden witch's house. The answer, according to Samuel, is quite simple. It was disobedience. Saul now has finally hit rock bottom. He's like the alcoholic who was one day homeless, alone, unemployed, and destitute. And he finally looks at himself in the mirror and he realizes how very far he has truly fallen. The message is too much for Saul to handle. Facing his own death is bad enough. But the death of his sons and the defeat of the army draws Saul deeper into depression. He hasn't eaten, and only at the insistence of the medium do he and his man finally get a bite and then go home to await their fate. I heard of a death row chaplain this week who said that he's seen men order elaborate meals for their last supper. But he then added, it's a very rare occasion I've ever seen any of them even take one bite. I guess your impending death has a way of ruining your appetite. There's a new diet idea for us called the death diet. Now, on a side note, it says she had the fatted calf inside her house. Look, if I'm going to go to someone for advice on life and they have a cow living in their house, I'm going to find somebody else to talk to. 
I just hope she had a big litter box. But how would you feel if you knew that God had rejected you and you're about to suffer a crushing defeat and to top it all off the next day, you and your children are going to die? I'm sure that Saul's mind was full of remorse and regret, full of fear and full of hopelessness. He could see now how terrible it was to have made all of those wrong turns we've been reading about over the past few months. He could see now how traveling the wrong road has finally brought him to a dead end. The one thing he couldn't do now is change his destiny. He had truly gone too far to turn back now. His life would end in failure, suffering, and death. His tombstone in the Bible reads this way. This is 1 Chronicles 10.13. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. In Matthew 7.13, Jesus once said that every one of us is walking down just one of two roads, one wide road that leads to death and one very narrow road that leads to life. His words imply that making a wrong turn in life is not just inconvenient, but it's disastrous. It's hard to believe that a man like Saul, who started out so well, is going to end up so terribly. But these verses demonstrate a key truth to us this morning. Follow the wrong road long enough, and you will meet a dead end. I think Saul's like most people who make wrong decisions and wrong turns. He didn't realize it until it was too late. And from this tragic episode in the life of Saul, I hope you and I can avoid to not make wrong turns. And most of all, to realize that if we have made a wrong turn this morning, it's not too late to turn around. There are too many people in life who end up just like Saul. They take the wrong turn. They know they're on the wrong road, but they find out too late they're headed for a dead end. The chapter closes with these poignant words. Then they rose and went away that night. There's a New Testament counterpart to this story. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, we are told that Judas left the disciples to betray Christ. And then these chilling words are added, and it was night. I think of one other man, though, who sought counsel at night, Nicodemus. Unlike Saul, however, Nicodemus would not remain in the dark, for he sought counsel from the light of the world. But tragically, Saul just slips away into the night. The next time we read of Saul, he'll be in the battle that will take his life. In closing... Charles Murray was once a student at the University of Cincinnati. He was a high diver and was training for the Summer Olympics. A fellow student had been talking to him for quite some time about her relationship with God. And not being raised in a family that attended church, this was all quite new and fascinating to Charles. He had even begun asking questions about sin and forgiveness. Finally, the day came when his friend put the question to him. Are you ready to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior? 
The expression on his face changed, and he replied with a strong and emphatic no. But because he was training for the Olympics, Charles had special privileges at the university pool. And sometime between 10.30 and 11 o'clock that night, he decided to swim and practice a few dives. It was a clear night in October, and the moon was big and bright. The pool was housed under a ceiling of glass pane, so the moon shone brightly across the top of the wall in the pool area. Charles climbed to the highest platform to take his first dive. He stood on the platform backwards to make his dive. He spread his arms apart to get balance, and he looked up to the wall. And he saw something that froze him in his tracks. There on the wall was his own shadow made by the light of the moon. And with his arms outstretched, it was in the shape of a cross. He sat down on the diving board and began to pray. He asked God to forgive him and, pray and save him. He trusted Christ sitting on a diving board about 20 feet into the air. And suddenly at that point, the lights of the pool area came on. The attendant had come in to check the pool. And as Charles turned around and looked from the diving board, he noticed for the first time the pool had no water in it. It had been drained for repairs. He had almost plummeted to his death, but he stood at the crossroads and made the right decision just in the nick of time. Now this morning, your decision concerning Jesus won't save you from diving onto concrete. It's much more important than that. What we do with Christ have the eternal implications of heaven and hell. And if you are unsure of where you stand and you would like to talk to me, I'll be happy to talk with you. Father, we are so thankful that you have given us a way out. Lord, that you have taken our place. That you have taken the sin and the punishment that rightly should be attributed to us. And you bore it on the cross. Open our eyes, Lord, to the truth of that. If there's any here that don't know you, make that real to them. For those of us who do know you, Lord, make it fresh and special one more time. We ask in Christ's name, amen.